The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, if you have your Bibles or your apps, you can get them open to Numbers chapter 21. Um, There are Bibles in the seats in front of you if you would like to use that to follow along. If you do not own a Bible, we have some as gifts for you in our Welcome Center out in the lobby that we would love to give you so you can take home and read and study for yourself. We are a church that loves God's Word and we want to be shaped and conformed to Christ's image by His Word. So Numbers chapter 21, we're kind of finishing our little mini-series here. And while you're flipping there, let me tell you about a course that was offered at Yale University in 2018. It was entitled Psychology and the Good Life. And yes, I know we did change sermon series. Um, But the class was uh, titled Psychology and the Good Life, and it was taught by Dr. Laurie Santos. And this class, when it was offered, it had 1,200 students, 1,200 undergraduate students enrolled, which is nearly one quarter of the undergraduate population of the school. It was the most popular course ever offered in the history of the school, and it was so popular that they only offered it once because of how, massive, how the massive enrollment affected all of the other classes. Reflecting on the significance of this course, one of the students, when they were asked, said this, the fact that a class like this has such large interest speaks to how tired students are of numbing their emotions, both positive and negative, so they can focus on their work, the next step, the next accomplishment. In other words, no matter, how, no matter what they thought might satisfy, students still found themselves anxious, depressed, and unhappy. Dr. Santos herself, she looked back on the course and she said, all of our intuitions about what will make us happy like winning the lottery or getting a good grade, are totally wrong. And so that raises the question, if our intuitions about how to be happy and how to be satisfied are wrong, then how can we ever really know how to be satisfied? How can we know what is truly going to make our hearts content and happy? You and I live in a world that relentlessly sells us paths to happiness. The pursuit of happiness is, after all, one of the unalienable rights of being an American. And so we're told that you can buy this product, eat this food, have this experience, and you will find what you are really looking for. This week, well, you've already likely, but this week especially, you've been bombarded with deals and sales and clever commercials on the newest gadgets and clothing because these are the items and the gifts that you'll need to make this Christmas season special. But the ironic thing is that in this very same culture, we find that those who have the most tend to be those who are least satisfied. A quick Google search will reveal example after example of the rich and famous lamenting their fame and fortune. Many celebrities are are becoming increasingly public about their struggles with anxiety and depression and having to put on an image for the rest of the world. And it's all brought about by their so-called success. Two of the more famous examples come from some of our most celebrated athletes. Andre Agassi, the great tennis champion, has now lamented in his autobiography a few years ago that he hated tennis. 
And the reason why, he said, is he said, now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad, and the good feeling doesn't last as long as the bad. Not even close. And those of you who maybe have struggled with addictions, or maybe who have been into serious gambling, you know that a win doesn't feel as good as a loss feels bad. Perhaps you're here this morning and you know of a famous uh, quarterback named Tom Brady. And he had a famous interview in 2005 with 60 Minutes. And this was after he'd won three Super Bowl rings, I think. And he was asked, what does this mean for you? What is the significance of these Super Bowl wins? And he says, you know, people look at me and say, man, he must really, he must really be it. You know, he's, he's achieved his dreams. He has everything he could ever want. But he says to himself, you know, what I think is just, God, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be something more than this. Maybe you feel this kind of pressing emptiness this morning. Perhaps this upcoming holiday season haunts you like a looming shadow because you know it's going to come and then leave again and leave you empty, maybe even stronger than it is now. I want you to know that I think God has a good word for you and for us this morning. Our passage this morning is likely the most well-known of all of the accounts in the book of Numbers, not only because the incident itself grabs our attention, but also because it contains one of the clearest images that Jesus uses to describe his own work, as we read in John chapter 3. In this text, we will be able to see ourselves in the grumbling Israelites, in their lack of contentment and their dissatisfaction. I hope that we will see in our time together that true happiness and satisfaction can only be found in Jesus and what he has won for us on his cross. And so let's turn now our attention to the reading of God's word from Numbers chapter 21. I'll begin in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Let's pray together. Father, we ask your blessing on this time now. Give us humble hearts, humble minds to sit under your word, and to receive this teaching you have for us. Fill us with gratitude and with joy and thanksgiving, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three things I want to draw your attention to in this text as we walk through it together. First, what the complaining heart looks like. The complaining heart. Second, the consequences of a complaining heart. And third, the cure for our complaining heart. So first, what does a complaining heart look like? 
Our passage this morning comes on the heels of a turning point in the book of Numbers. Beginning in Numbers 11, we find that the people of Israel prove themselves to be a complaining and grumbling people, never satisfied with God's provision, always looking back to Egypt as if it were better there uh, than where God would lead them. There are seven episodes of complaint recorded between Numbers 11 and Numbers 20, and they all follow something of a repeated pattern of complaint, of God's discipline, and some means of deliverance. Now, Numbers 20 is a dark chapter. Not only is this where Moses acts in anger and strikes the rock and he's sentenced to die outside of the promised land, but it's also where we read of the death of Miriam and Aaron, Moses' sister and brother. And yet amidst all of this darkness, there is hope because the death of Moses' siblings tells us that the first generation of Israelites, those who had been redeemed out of Egypt, those who had been, because of their lack of faith, had been told they would never enter the promised land, they're beginning to die. And so Numbers 33 tells us that Aaron's death came 40 years after they had left Egypt. And so the first generation is dying, and the second generation now stands ready to enter and inherit the promised land. So there will soon be a fortune, turn of fortune for these people. At the beginning of Numbers 21, we read in verse 3 of this great victory by the second generation Israelites with the destruction of the Canaanites and their cities at this place called Hormah. Forty years earlier, spies had been sent into the land. And when they came back, they reported out of fear and a lack of faith that the people who dwelled in the promised land were too strong. God promised victory. But the Israelites doubted and believed the spies. And so soon after, the Canaanites came up out of their land and they pursued and defeated the people of Israel. And this happened at the place called Hormah. That's Numbers 14.45. So what was once a site of humiliating defeat for the first generation has now become the site of overwhelming victory for the second. So surely things are looking up. Things are going to go better for the second generation, right? Well, not yet. The sins of the first are passed down to the second, and the people grumble. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? There is no food or water here. This is the same complaint which arose from the first generation decades earlier. In Exodus 16 and 17. And so in the complaint of the second generation, we see at least three symptoms of the complaining and grumbling heart. First, there is dissatisfaction with God. God had provided food and water over and over again for the Israelites in the wilderness. Each day for 40 years, he had done so. He even promised them enough that they would be able to rest on the Sabbath and have no need for work. And yet they are still not satisfied. They doubt the goodness of God's provision for their lives. Our dissatisfaction can be found when we use phrases like this. If I could just, if I could just have this, then I'll be happy. If I could just have this experience or this vacation, then I'll really be able 
to rest. When we are dissatisfied with God's provision, we look to other people, places, or things to make us satisfied. So a complaining heart begins with dissatisfaction with God. Second, there is a desire for something more. It's not that the people of Israel did not have food or water, but they wanted more food and water, better food and water. The force of the Hebrew here is really something along the lines of, this food makes us vomit. The human heart, when it is dissatisfied with God, will always diminish the good gifts of God and desire something more and better for itself. I know I just got the new AirPods last year for Christmas, but the AirPod Pros are on sale for $20 off this year, so, huh? I know we already have a 52-inch TV, but if we wait in line starting at 3 p.m. on Wednesday, then at 4 a.m. on Friday, the doors will open and we can run over our neighbor and get a new TV for 55-inch TV for half off. Great. This is what the prophet Jeremiah would call empty cisterns. We forsake the fountain of living waters and make for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Third, a complaining heart is always rooted in jealousy, envy, and comparison. Remember that this complaint is coming out of the second generation, most of whom had never stepped foot in the land of Egypt. They did not know what life in Egypt was like, but they had heard the grumbling stories of their parents who said that in Egypt there was plenty of delicious food to eat and drink and the slavery really wasn't so bad. If we could just eat what our parents ate in Egypt, then we would be satisfied, you see? And here's something ironic. The second generation Israelites think the wilderness is awful and Egypt would be great. But if you fast forward a few hundred years to John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and the people come and they ask, well, what sign are you going to do for us? God fed the people in the wilderness, so what are you going to give us? You see? They compare themselves to the second generation as if they had it great. Jesus tells the Jewish people that he himself is the bread from heaven and they grumble. It's so easy to compare what we have with others, isn't it? Last week, uh, Neva and I and Felix, we were vacationing in Williamsburg and it was really this wonderful, sweet time. It was, it was just great. It was restful. We enjoyed the time. We made memories. It was just tremendous. But it was you know, it was the best vacation that we could take within our means. And it was a good vacation. While I was there, my financing banker friend was sending me pictures from his beautiful photos of his wife and he hiking the Andes. These beautiful pictures. And I've gotten used to the fact that he always takes extravagant vacations every year and I've gotten used to the fact that he will have experiences that I will never have, you know? But it's those kind of moments where it's hard not to compare ourselves to others, isn't it? You think what you have is great until something, oh, well, look at that. Maybe for you it's not physical stuff. 
Maybe you've been stuck for years comparing your job to others or your marriage or the relationship you have with your kids to what other people have. And you know that every time you go down that path, you're going to come up empty. And yet we do it anyways. The sad thing is, is that when our hearts are consumed by complaint, we go through life preparing to be happy, but never actually being happy. So many of us are going through life preparing to be happy and never actually being happy today. Happiness, joy, and satisfaction, they always appear on the horizon, but just out of reach. So this is a complaining heart, a heart that is dissatisfied with God, always looking for something more, starved because it can't help but compare itself with others. And as the second generation found out, there are consequences for our grumbling. Verse 6 says that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and when they bit the people, many of them died. The wages of sin and unbelief continue to be death for this new generation. Now you might be asking the familiar question, snakes? Why did it have to be snakes? We need to recognize that neither the consequence nor the cure are random. It's not as if God was sitting around like, what shall I afflict them with today? I haven't done snakes yet. Let's do that. This was a sign that was full of meaning for the Israelites and one that continues to be full of meaning for us today. The serpents were a fresh reminder to this second generation of the power of Egypt. The power of Egypt to which these second generation children were seemed so eager to return. Snakes were a well-known symbol of power and sovereignty in Egypt. Perhaps you've seen images of the crowns of Pharaoh with the cobra or the serpent on it. Archaeologists have discovered in their excavations from this region a 13th century BC temple to the Egyptian god Hathor. Inside what they believe to be the holy place of the temple, they have discovered a metal snake, which was used in Egyptian worship. That these serpents are described as fiery likely has little to do with their appearance, but with their bite. The inflammation, the venom caused by the bite and the subsequent burning and the pain that it caused prompted them to be called fiery. Perhaps the sting and the pain of venom was to give the second generation Israelites an idea of the pain of the whips which the Egyptians had inflicted on their parents. But the meaning of the fiery serpents goes even deeper, doesn't it? For the serpent is a symbol of our ultimate enemy, Satan himself. It was Satan who, in the form of a serpent, had infiltrated the garden and deceived our first father, Adam, into believing that God alone would not satisfy. It was Adam's lack of faith and dissatisfaction in God which brought about the sin of this fallen world. Romans 5.12 tells us that therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Through these fiery serpents, death spread through the Israelites because of their sin. 
Excuse me. God allowed the Israelites to see and feel the consequences of their sin. They could not see the poison in their souls until they had poison in their bodies. You see, left to ourselves, we will never wake up to our need. We never see what's wrong with our lives, why we are so dissatisfied, why we are empty, why we continue to do the very things which we know just leave us in pain. Something must happen in our lives to wake us up to our need for Jesus. And you might say, how could God be just or kind to do something like this? How could he be just or kind to use suffering in order to get us to turn to him? Here's what we must remember. God is good. He is supremely Good, and he does not give out punishment or vengeance as sinners do. We must remember that our sin, the sin in our hearts, is like a cancer. And we don't know it's there until the symptoms put us in the doctor's chair. The consequences of our sin are meant to drive us to our need of the great physician. And this is exactly what happened to the Israelites. The weight of their sin was revealed and it drove them to repentance. They knew their pain and their trouble was self-induced. There was no longer an excuse for their sin. And so their hearts are moved in repentance and they confess to Moses, we have sinned for we have spoken against you and against the Lord. And when our hearts are humbled and moved to repentance, we are ready to receive God's cure cure for our complaining heart. God instructs Moses to make a bronze serpent and lift it up not just on a pole, but likely on what was a pike, piercing the very thing that brought them death. The snake was hoisted up not as a sign of living hope, but as a symbol of the powerlessness of Egypt and the crushing crushing defeat which would someday be delivered to that ancient serpent, Satan. In Genesis 3.15, God promised that an offspring of Eve would come and crush the head of Satan. And in our reading from John 3 today, we discover that Jesus Christ is the promised offspring who has defeated Satan and the power of sin once and for all. As he told Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up. What does this mean? Well, To receive the cure for our complaining, sinful hearts, what all the Israelites had to do was to look upon the bronze serpent and they would live. To look at the bronze serpent was a sign of faith that God had conquered the powerlessness force of Egypt and the power of sin and Satan. When we look to Jesus, we discover that life can only be found in Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for our sake. On the cross, Jesus was punished as sin itself. He received the eternal death that we deserve, that Egypt deserved, that even the serpent deserved. He was crushed so that all who looked to him would live. And what does this mean for us? Two words. I want to speak to you this morning. First is a word for those of you who are here who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
on behalf of our church, we want you to know that we are really glad that you're here and we hope that you will find that this is a safe and engaging place to ask your questions. Let me just tell you this morning what it looks like to take the cure that is offered to us in Jesus. Do you remember what he said to Nicodemus? Jesus doesn't just tell him that he needs to have his sins forgiven. He tells Nicodemus that he needs to be born again. It's not just that we need to have a clean slate. It's that we need to be made new. When the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent, it wasn't enough for their grumbling and complaining to be forgiven. They needed to be healed, to be restored. Jesus told Nicodemus, and he's telling us today, that we need not just be pardoned, but we need to be healed. He is offering us the medicine which will make us new and change us from the inside out. How does this happen? All you have to do is look. Look to Jesus and trust that his promises to you are true. And here's how you'll begin to know that God is at work in you, causing you to be born again. First, the pleasures of this world will start to seem really empty. When Jesus is at work in our hearts, he begins to show us that what we thought would bring us happiness and satisfaction really just leave us empty and dry. Whether that was a job or a relationship or social status, none of these things bring what they promise. We discover that once we have what we think we wanted, we end up just wanting something else instead. So the pleasures of this world will start to feel empty. Second, the pain of your sin will start to grieve you. The pain you've caused to others, the carelessness of your actions, the emptiness of your addictions will start to become more than you can bear. When Jesus was at work in my heart and began drawing me to himself, I became painfully aware of how many people I had damaged, how many relationships I had burned out of bitterness or envy, how my my loud mouth and my cynicism was damaging those around me. I began to realize that if I was causing this much pain to those around me, how much more pain and offense was I causing to a holy and perfect God? Has God made you aware of the pain of your sin. Third, new life in Jesus will begin to look very sweet. Jesus said in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And before God does a work in your heart, that is just going to sound like an overused cheesy bumper sticker. But as God begins to show us the emptiness of our pursuits and the weight of our sin, this beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will become amazingly simple and yet profoundly beautiful. What's so amazing about the remedy in Numbers 21 is that God didn't say, here's the list of things you need to do to get back in favor with me. No, he said, look. That's it. Look. And live. That's how faith works. And God's promise to you this morning is that if you look to Christ, he will make you new. Fourth, you'll be filled with a new joy. 
the fruit of being born again, is new life in Christ, which produces hope, love, and joy. When you know for yourself that God has loved you so much that he gave his son for you, that kind of love will change you. You'll find that it's possible to have joy and gratitude even in the worst of circumstances. You'll discover that no matter what others may say about you or do to you, you have infinite worth with God. There's a story of the 4th century African church father, St. Augustine. He was well known prior to coming to faith. He was well known for living a life of lust and womanizing. Years later, after he had become a Christian, he was walking down the street in public, and one of his old flames walked by and tried to get his attention, but he just kept on walking. She said, "Uh, Augustine, it is I. And he said, I know, but it is not I. This is what it means to be born again, to have new life in Jesus. You'll stop looking to other people or things to define you and find that it was what is now most precious to you is new life. In Christ. That is what it looks like to be born again. And second, I just want to close with a word of encouragement to those of you who are in Christ this morning. Joy is hard some days, isn't it? There are days where finding joy is really hard. I have nothing new to tell you. I have nothing to tell you that you don't already know. But this is what Jesus says to us this morning. The things of this world will not satisfy. People, though we may love them and though they may love us, they cannot ultimately satisfy. And I know many of you are going through a hard season, a hard year, maybe even a hard decade God's promise to us this morning is that happiness and satisfaction are found in him alone. As we read in Romans chapter 8, though our faith may be weak, though your faith may be weak today, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from his love. His faithfulness to you has not wavered. His love has not changed. He is the author and the finisher of your faith, just as he is of mine. And nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. And so may God keep us looking to Jesus if we have looked. And may God bring us to look to him if we have never looked. Amen.